Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. My guests in this episode, uh, this is a truly inspiring story. It's a, he's a WA scientist. He has a PhD in chemistry. Uh, he's an inventor uh, and a uh, starter and uh, founder and director of, uh, of several different companies, uh, utilising his obviously immense intellect. <laughs> um, Dr. Ramez Bulos is our special guest. Uh, and as part of his backstory, uh, he arrived here in Perth as a teenager after fleeing with his family from war-torn Sudan. So there's a lot to get through in the next hour or so, but let's say hello and welcome firstly to Dr. Ramiz Bulos. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Uh, there's, I feel like there's a lot to get through um, in this next hour, Dr. Ramiz, because you'll have to keep in mind that I do not possess a PhD in chemistry, so you'll have to go easy on me when you're explaining all of your amazing creations. Um, which I'm sure, I'm sure it won't be the first time you've had to do that. I know one of, one of the big things that you, you are pursuing at the moment is in the area of antibiotics. We hear a lot about antibiotic-resistant superbugs, particularly uh, in hospitals uh, and those sorts of places. You are trying to find an alternative to that, aren't you, those antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Can you, can you give us the layman's explanation of what exactly you're doing so in in simple terms what we're doing is we we've developed um something that's completely new that does not resemble any antibiotic classes out there and a class is just simply um, a, a term used for a chemical compound that shares some similar characteristics so we're developing something that's uh, synthetic um, so that means it hasn't been around in nature before. We brought it to life, and because of that, it has a really good opportunity um, of uh, fighting superbugs for a very long time. We hear particularly about uh, you know golden staph infections when people do go to hospitals. So uh, with your new synthetic uh, option, uh, you would be able to, uh, to, to make that a thing of the past if it all goes well. Is that about right? Absolutely. So hospitals are really hotbeds for superbugs because just uh, the fact that people use a lot of antibiotics in hospitals. And so any bugs that survive tend to be superbugs. Golden staff is one of those superbugs that causes a lot of issues in hospitals. 
but there is another superbug in Australia, which is also uh, causes a huge prob- problem called Clostridius uh, difficile. And uh, that is the number one cause of diarrhea in hospitals. It is a really big problem, um, kills about 500 people a year in Australia. And uh, it does really uh, affect mostly people with a compromised immune system or the elderly. So that is a bacteria that we are currently targeting with one of the drugs we're developing. Okay. How, d- how tough is it uh, to take a, an idea to going through then the process of, of research and development, human trials, uh, getting it approved and getting it as part of a normal course of treatment? Do, how, how difficult is that process? How long does it, it take? How much money does it take? It is extremely difficult. <laughs> it's a very long process and you have to really be extremely patient uh, um, on average, it takes 15 to 20 years from the day you start working on something until it gets to the shelves in the pharmacy. And uh, the expense can be huge. Uh, so you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to get the drug to the mm. pharmacy. Um, and the challenge there is a lot of the time there is uh, toxicity issues with the drug you're developing. So you're essentially trying to find something that kills the bacteria without killing the the host, which is yeah. the, the human um, involved uh, or patient. So there is a lot of uh, going back and forth optimization that's involved, but there's also numerous uh, tests and studies that you need to go through to ensure the safety and efficacy of a drug and uh, as I say, these take years and years to mm. complete. Which I suppose puts uh, you know you in that position where you have to really, obviously, believe deeply in what you're doing, uh, but also have an incredible sense of, of patience and 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 foresight to to see a finish line and a bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. You have to really believe in what you're doing because if, if you don't believe in what you're doing, others will not. And uh, that extends to in a company to investors as well. And uh, if you don't attract investment, then you're not going to go anywhere. So, mm. um, so it all starts from from the science and the scientists behind the work. So, when can we expect to, it's it's Ramizol, isn't it? The, uh, the the drug that you're developing. When can we expect to uh, see that on the shelves or available? So Ramazol, we started. Uh, I started working on this in uh, my honors year in 2006. Wow. Um, and 2005, sorry. And uh, so it's been a long it's journey been a while already. already. Yeah. And uh, we are getting close to human trials, so we can expect to start human trials next year. Yeah. And uh, all going well, it would be another say eight years before it gets to the pharmacy. Wow! Um, so we're we're getting close and closer. <laughs> You're getting closer still, still maybe towards the end of the 2020s. Um, you, you mentioned that you started this during your honours year, studying chemistry at UWA in 2005. Did you stumble upon it by by accident, or was it something you were actively pursuing at the time? And do you remember when you realised that you'd maybe come up with something that had you know real potential in the future? 
Yeah, so the project I did was extremely interesting because it was looking at uh, these ion channels um, in bacteria. Yeah. So they act as, uh, an, if you like, a, an emergency valve or a tap. So when a bacteria swells up um, to a size where it's going to explode, um, these taps or ion channels open and they allow the water to uh, be released from the bacteria so they they bacteria can shrink back to their original size and they can survive that way yeah so the the project i was looking at was looking at developing drugs that can mess around with that ion channel Mm -hmm. and by doing that they can affect the survival of the bacteria so this project during my honors was all computer-based and uh, coming as a fresh graduate, I didn't have, I guess, the bias of um, how researchers in the field, the experts, uh, do things. So I came up with a very unusual method in, in how to develop these drugs. And uh, it was um, not until during my PhD when we synthesized these drugs and tested them that the eureka moment came. Yeah. And do you remember that eureka moment well? Absolutely. It was uh, it was a huge deal for me. Uh, so the way you do a test is you have what you call a Petri dish, yep. which has some medium which allows the bacteria to grow on. And in the middle of that, you put a sterile uh, disc, which is like just a small cotton uh, disc. And on that, you put your drug. And if there is killing, so if the drug works, what you end up with is a clear zone of inhibition surrounding the disc and everywhere else the bacteria grows. So that was incubated. The the Petri dish was incubated overnight. And Mm. I came the next morning and found these huge zones of clearance around the disc, meaning the drug was effective at killing the bacteria. And it was unbelievable. Mm. And if I'd extremely have, exciting. I can imagine. If I'd have said to you back in 2005 when you were a, uh, an honours student at UWA, if I'd have said to you then, Ramiz, that uh, 15 years from now we'll be uh, getting an update on it and uh, your projection is still another eight or nine years or so from when it might come to fruition, would you have believed me then or would, have, would you have said, nah, it'll be much, uh, much quicker than that? I would have thought you were from another planet. I would have thought it would have gotten that far. <laughs> well, here we are, and you're still with it. Um, so, yeah, we look forward to, to you uh, getting that, um, you know, to pharmaceutical dispensing level. I mean, yeah, it sounds like it would be an absolute uh, game changer. And, and, gosh, if we could make those, um, uh, you know, Clostridium um, difficile and... and golden staff a thing of the past that would only be a good thing for humanity wouldn't it absolutely i mean uh, the the number one global health uh, challenge was um, was announced by governments in the who as antibiotic resistance so it's a it's an issue that kills over yep. 700,000 people a year and wow. it's a global issue, um, yep. and it's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting uh, a lot worse because yep. the the mining, if you like, of new antibiotic drugs has um, has really declined in recent years, the last uh, 30 or 40 years, because 
um, historically, they used to extract antibiotics or isolate them from soil samples right. because bacteria produce antibiotics to defend themselves against mm. other bacteria. But mm. they have exhausted these um, uh, these supplies, if you like, or or, or soil um, samples. And now we need something. More, we need an innovative way to develop new drugs. Yeah. Uh, Ramiz, we need to take a break, but after that, I want to go back to your childhood because that's a, a pretty epic story uh, in itself. And if you can tell us uh, what life was like growing up in uh, in Sudan and then what brought your family here to Perth uh, when you were a teenager. We'll get into that after the break. Dr. Ramiz Bullis is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories, back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Dr. Ramiz Bullos is our special guest. Uh, Ramiz, I've sort of uh, mentioned it just before the break there. You've got uh, quite a tale to tell just covering your childhood itself. Uh, you were born in Khartoum in Sudan. Uh, and look, it's a place that people in Australia may not know a, a huge amount about, apart from the fact that uh, it has been ravaged by war and violence for many years and, and led to a lot of people uh, wanting to get out of Sudan and seek a better life elsewhere. Is that a fair summation of, of what was going on with your family when you were living there as a youngster? So, yeah, uh, my life in Sudan was, as a as a child was really fantastic, yeah. uh, which a lot of people might be surprised by. So I grew up in the 80s and uh, we had a lot of cousins and uh, life was really Brilliant. We used to catch up all the time, play out with our bikes on the dirt, on the streets, and and um, enjoyed school and all of that. But towards um, the mid-90s, things started taking a, a turn during the war, and that's when things became very unsafe, and um, that's when a lot of families started leaving Sudan. Yeah. Do you remember the the atmosphere there, you know, when things did start to turn? Um, you know, was it a gradual thing that you experienced there with your, your family or, you know, did it, ha- did it seem like it happened quite suddenly where it went from being, you know, a, a great place to grow up, as you mentioned, to being, right, this is dangerous, we've got to perhaps think about life elsewhere? I think it uh, certainly happened gradually there were lots of other problems be, uh, other than the war there was uh, inflation you know uh, yeah. there was lots of um, shortages of um, uh, food uh, medicines um, healthcare is a big problem so we could see that uh, people were starting to suffer um, but when the war started, that's when it really became very bad because what was happening was the there were government trucks that would load uh, teenagers as they come out of their final year exam and take them straight to the war zone. So anytime we were late uh, to arrive home, mom would uh, be so worried she would have 
been just walking around, um, sending people to look for us, and uh, she would be in a very panicky mood because you never know if you were, she wouldn't know if we were going to come back. Mm, that must have been absolutely terrifying for your folks. Yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. And uh, once you hit uh, the age of 18, you have to do what they call military service, insert in inverted commas there. And uh, what that means is the, they, they take you down to the war zone. And um, so a lot of families try to get their kids out before they reach the age of 18. Yeah. And that's when my older brother and I left Sudan. Yeah. So do you remember a time when your your parents or relatives sat you down and said, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to look for a safer place to live? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, mom and dad were very concerned, uh, very worried. Uh, They couldn't see a bright future there. Uh, the war was going on, safety, uh, security was always in the forefront of their mind. And uh, just before my older brother turned 18, uh, we left from there to the uh, to the UK. He was very close to uh, turning 18, so the environment at the airport was extremely stressful. Yeah. Uh, it was very tense, and um, we had to pay someone to just, you know, let us go through. Um, from there, we went to the UK. When yep. uh, we, I have uncles and aunties in the UK that have left Sudan in the early 90s, so we stayed with them for a while and then came to Australia. Yeah. Um, 1999, uh, if I'm right, um, was around about the time you got out and started the journey that brought you here to, to Perth. But do you remember, um, was it a long process just to leave Sudan in the first place? I mean, when you start applying for, for refugee status uh, somewhere else in the world, it's not always a, a quick process, is it? Do you remember it yeah. being a long and drawn-out thing? Absolutely. It took, it took forever. I remember we applied in 93. 93? And... Uh, we haven't heard back until 98 and uh we thought that this was never no one was gonna ever look at our paperwork and we just moved on um and when it finally came that was um yeah a surprise because we had a certain time period that we needed to arrive into the country so that our um visa stays valid. Mm. Um, so the, we came to Australia and of course the, the flight from the UK to Australia was a very long flight. Yeah. It was uh, 17 hours which we did um, and uh, but it was my older brother and I and we were young and excited about what we're going to find it on the other end and uh, we didn't really feel the time at all. We just kept joking and laughing, teasing each other and uh, yeah. So it was just your brother and yourself who who came to Perth? That's correct. We came and we stayed with uh, my great uncle who lives in Ocean Reef Yeah. Um, and we stayed with them. I, I remember we arrived on the 18th of December and uh, then my parents arrived on the 23rd, I think, just a couple of days before Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, it was really, really different. And your brother, is he older than you or younger? He's uh, ten and a half months older than me, right. which is a very close uh, age gap. So we, growing up, we always were together. We used to go to the same year at school. We always used to hang out together uh, during the break, which was good and bad at the same time. I, I can imagine. Having said that, yeah. I mean, what an experience to go through together, you know, two wide-eyed teenagers sitting on a plane from, well, from Sudan to the UK and then, you know, onto this faraway place called Perth on the other side of the world. I mean, what did you expect when you were going to get off the plane here? I had no idea because, you know, growing up in Sudan, we hardly heard of Australia at all. All I knew was that there are kangaroos around the place. (laughs) But uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to walk out and find one. And then the other thing I knew was there are deserts or it's a dry continent because growing up, I remember watching the songbirds uh, or bits of it and also remembering that there are so many sheep around the place. Um, But going out into the catching um, a car from there, my great aunt came picked us up and she drove us along the freeway and I couldn't see any houses or any people walking mm. so it was a completely different uh, setup which mm. was very surprising <laughs> until we got to the suburbs so yeah, very very different Yeah, absolutely How long before you saw your first kangaroo? Um, I think we we can't really remember uh, if it was out in the wild or uh, we ended up going to the zoo to see some. Yeah. But uh, I always enjoyed uh, seeing kangaroos and just how far and high they can jump. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. Pretty impressive. How do you yeah. how did you find uh, settling in then? Obviously, you know, great that you had your brother and some other relatives, uh, you know, who were here already. How did you find the settling in process? Uh, you know, late 90s in Perth, you've come from Sudan via the UK. How, how did you go settling in here? I think I found it uh, challenging for the first couple of years. It yep. was really challenging because it's a completely different uh, way of life. Um, new, um, I had to make new friends. I, ha- I didn't know anyone, so it was uh, very challenging. But um, I remember we went to Tewart College for our year 12, and that made a huge difference because it had a lot of internationals Mm -hmm. and also had mature age students. And so it kind of, uh, we felt a sense of uh, belonging a little bit, and uh, it really eased us into the system. So it was was really fantastic. Mm. Did you speak any English at all when you got here? We did, but it was kind of uh, pretty much just um, the way terminology that you would use in in studies. So our English was really not that great at all. And, um, of course, you don't practice. um, So that makes things a lot harder as well. Yeah. Um, Fascinating story. Uh, Ramiz, we need to take another break. But after that, uh, we'll get on to your post-school life and... 
uh, and this world of chemistry that opened up to you. And boy, you haven't looked back since, have you? So we'll get into that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Dr. Ramos Bullos is our special guest. Uh, we've just been talking about uh, his uh, great adventure fleeing uh, war torn Sudan with his family in the late 90s, arriving here, not really knowing much about Perth, but uh, obviously settling settling in well and doing extremely well at uh, Chewett College where you did your year 12 studies at Ramiz in 2000 uh, because it wasn't long after that you were studying chemistry at university on your way to uh, to achieving a PhD there. Uh, where did the interest in chemistry come from, Ramiz? I think the interest in chemistry came um, when I was in year 12 in um Stewart College, yep. uh, we had a uh, lecturer there um, who made chemistry seem very uh, systematic and very easy to understand and follow. And uh, I was fascinated by how everything at, at a very low level really is turns into chemistry, so mm. especially in um, the biological sciences, so everything deep down is really chemistry. So I was really interested in learning about chemistry and the application of um, chemistry in the real world, because um, again, when you look around you, uh, all of the materials that you see have some sort of um, chemistry involved in their manufacturing. So yeah. I was fascinated by that as well. Isn't it amazing how one teacher at school can inspire you and, and set you on a path like that? Yeah, it was um, it was really, really incredible. I uh, will always cherish and remember very fondly my year at uh, Stewart College. It yeah. had a huge yeah. effect on my uh, life and, and journey. Yeah. So, I mean, going through the years at, uh, at UWA, you know, taking a, a bachelor degree first and then moving your way towards a, a PhD, it, you know, I mean, that takes uh, a number of years in itself. Uh, you've obviously then moved uh, beyond that, um, you know, into the pharmaceutical industry properly. Do you have a, a business brain as well, Ramiz, or do you, do you think at your core you're fundamentally a scientist but you've had to take on business skills? Or, how, you know, how do you balance those uh, those different sides of your brain that have to kind of work in some sort of some sort of harmony to do what you do. Um, that's a good question, and to <laughs> be honest, I, I don't know if I have also a business brain. I would say that I probably would have uh, some business skills to get to where I have gotten to, um, but also I was always uh, very. Uh, dedicated and focused once I get an idea in my mind, I almost become a bit obsessed with it. And um, I just pursue it and pursue it until I make it happen. So I remember in second year, um, I was talking to a friend and I said, I'm going to do a PhD in chemistry. 
And uh, she thought that was a bit crazy while in second year to talk about that. But uh, later, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I ran into her and she, when I told her that, she said, yeah, I remember you saying that. So <laughs> I think if you really are interested or you're really uh, keen on, on getting something done, yeah. uh, you just find a way to make it happen. And I wonder if you had, uh, you know, if your family hadn't have made that bold move to leave Sudan when they did, I wonder what life would have been like for you back there. I wonder what you'd be doing right now. Um, do you to think be about honest, that much? I do think about that a lot. And uh, I think my life would have been completely different in a much worse situation. So. Yeah. There were really no opportunities there, and uh, your the 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 amount status um, and wealth really dictate how you move through societies. And when I came to Australia, I found that these two things were not really um, part of the social norm here in how you're judged, and uh, that made a huge difference to how I look at things and also the amount of opportunities that are present. So I, it's, uh, I see Australia as really the land of opportunity. Mm. People yeah. talk about the U.S. as the land of opportunity, but I very much disagree. We're living in a wonderful country that's still a very green nation. Uh, there's lots of industries that are still not developed, so uh, lots and lots of opportunities here. One of the things I mentioned at the start when I introduced you um, was as an inventor. Um, and I want to ask you now about uh, another uh, invention of yours, a kind of liquid fertiliser called Veritin. Uh, can you, again, give me the layman's version of, of what that does, what you're hoping to do with that? So very grow, Veritin is another company that I'm involved with, and uh, it has a lot of, um, um, it's doing a lot of research and development into various products, but the first product that we launched last year is a product called Verigrow, and Verigrow is the world's first fertilizer and soil improver made from uh, low-grade wool. So sheep's wool. Sheep's wool. Yeah, and okay. essentially what we have developed is a way to turn the sheep's wool into a liquid. Right. And uh, this is really brilliant for, fantastic for the soil because wool, like hair, is made from a protein called keratin. Yeah. And all proteins are made from amino acids. They're the building blocks of life. So with a product like this, it's fantastic for the soil. Um, it's great in terms of building the organic content of the soil, great for the microorganisms in the soil, and great for the plants themselves. And, and a, a lot of us would know that our soils in Australia are very nutrient poor, and a lot of the time they're sand. So there is very little organic material in there. And, and Tell me how you came up with that idea. Again, were you just sort of letting your mind wander and, hey, presto, this, this idea to, uh, to turn waste wool into a liquid fertiliser just suddenly pops into your head, Ramiz. How did that happen? 
So in 2012, I think I was looking at um, developing my own kind of research. Yeah. And I was fascinated by the fact that almost everyone has hair and uh, it was a waste. Uh, wasn't there wasn't much being done with human hair, so well, most I of it started... just ends up on the floor, doesn't it? At the um, at the hairdresser and gets swept up and presumably just chucked in a bin. Exactly, ends yeah. up as landfill. So I was fascinated uh, with that, and I thought about uh, what if there are novel ways I could utilize this uh, waste material. So I ended up shaving my head and I walked into. <laughs> the lab with a bag full of hair and started doing <laughs> some experiments and I was getting very uh, strange looks from the guys around the the lab um, but um, I'm happy to say that the research uh, really was very promising and a few months uh, later I developed uh, a way where I can turn the hair into a liquid so that was fantastic, but a few years down the road, I moved to wool because wool doesn't have the quality control issue that mm. you face with hair. For example, people that take drugs, the drugs end up in uh, their hair. Sure. People also dye their hair, so all, there are lots of chemicals there. Sure. Yep. Um, and if I'm going to utilize this material for various applications it would need to be pure and clean and uh, so that's when I used wool and I was very excited by the prospect of using wool because there is an abundance of wool it has a market it's easy to uh, purchase and also in 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 respect um, or in relation to the product very grow we create a closed cycle where we take wool from a farm we turn it into a fertilizer and soil improver and then the sheep uh, graze on the crops and then the shear the sheep are sheared and we continue the cycle so mm. i was extremely uh, excited by that idea. amazing and, uh, and whatever became of that initial sample of yours from this, that bag of hair that you shaved off your own head and took into um, the lab, what became of that? I think we did quite a few experiments with it, <laughs> and I published a paper where in the materials and methods um, it, there was a line saying hair was kindly donated by <laughs> RAB, Ramazamir Boulos, and uh, utilized in the experiment. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it did contribute to science. There you go. It's not just to keep your head warm. It yes. Could be, you could unlock a, a whole new world of science and, and liquid fertilizer. Amazing. Um, Ramiz, we need to take another break. We'll let our hair grow another fraction of a millimetre for a few minutes and, and come back with more of your story in just a moment. This is Inspiring Stories. Dr Ramiz Bullos is our special guest. You'll hear more of his story soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. 
Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest in this episode is uh, Dr. Ramos Bulos, a WA uh, scientist and inventor uh, who came here as a teenager with his family from Sudan. Um, One of the things, uh, the companies that you've also founded and and created and currently direct, uh, Ramos, is uh, Bulos and Cooper Pharmaceuticals. Tell us about, uh, you know, what it's like setting up a company on what can often be a a very long-term pursuit uh, in your case, the holy grail of antibiotic-resistant superbug treatments. Yeah, so so it is um, a very very challenging uh, problem to have mm. uh, or to work on an, or address. Uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, superbugs are a huge huge problem, um, and there are several companies in the past that have attempted to work in this. Space. Uh, some of them would be uh, big, one of the big ten, some of the big ten pharmaceutical companies, and uh, these companies have in the past spent billions uh, over a decade to try and find an antibiotic uh, without success. So it's it's an area that is uh, in very much uh, need of. Um, innovation, but also there lies huge opportunities um, for a new drug that mm. has been developed. I, I have this uh, this image that's perhaps informed by Hollywood movies and, you know, and sinister novels that I've read about uh, big pharmaceutical companies, you know, wanting to get their hands on whatever the next treatment is going to be because, you know, there are billions and billions of dollars at stake and, and billions and billions of, uh, of, of customers around the world. Um, have I got a completely warped view of what it's like being in your world, Ramiz? I mean, is there this murky underworld where you've got, you know, sinister things at play that, that basically shape the way that uh, health and, and pharmaceuticals are dispensed around the world? Uh, well, um, at this point, we're still in the R&D, research and development phase, yep. uh, which is the fun part for me. It's uh, the very exciting stage. Uh, I think as we get closer to um, the market or as we get closer to a point where the big companies can see our assets as something they can acquire is when things will move to a different uh, phase, if you like, and uh, that's when things can get a little uh, competitive or um, can get a little, um, uh, yeah, competitive. Maybe, yeah. That, that's when you might get the people when the the cars with the tinted out windows and the sharp suits suddenly knock on your door and want to have yes. a chat. Do you look forward and, to that uh, time, Ramiz? Um, I think for me, I would look forward to something like that because it would, not from the, uh, I guess, that the money side of things would be uh, an acknowledgement of my work and innovation over many years but for me it would really be that someone believes so much in what i have created that they're willing to pay to acquire it and um it would be a huge sense of satisfaction yeah and what about uh, going forward obviously this has been a 
a, a long-term project of yours, um, particularly, you know, looking at the uh, the antibiotic resistance uh, work that you've been doing. Um, but going forward, I mean, you've obviously still got a long way to go in your career, hopefully. Um, what's the holy grail for you? What would you love to be able to to hang your hat on, to have your name attached to uh, when you do finally retire? I think uh, what I would like perhaps to do with my, my career is, is I love innovation. Mm. I love research and development. Um, but uh, I also like the feeling I get when an idea of mine comes to fruition and it works. Uh, that sense is just um, I haven't had anything in my life that matches the feeling I get when I have that sense of uh, success. So I would like perhaps my legacy to be um, just really trying to tackle big problems, I guess. Mm. Um, and there will be more to come for my uh, in my career and um, lots of other things that I would be working on. Well, all I can say is good luck with that and I will never look at uh, that pile of hair on the floor the same way next time I go and uh, get a haircut. So uh, <laughs> you've left a, a mark on me just on like that at least. Yeah, <laughs> I'll bag it up and send it on to you if you like. <laughs> Sounds right. good. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Ramiz. All the best and congratulations on all of your achievements so far. Thank you very much, Tim and Rob. Really appreciate you having me on the program. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks uh, for sharing your story with us uh, on another episode of Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.